It's a feast, huh? Well, uh, let's uh, open our Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah. It's on page 675. Page 675 if you're using one of those pew Bibles. And uh, if you're just joining us for the first time this Sunday, we're glad you're here. We just began a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah last Sunday. So we're just getting going here. You're, you're in on the ground floor still. And uh, last Sunday was a general overview and introduction to Isaiah. You remember we studied the four major themes of Isaiah. They were the royal majesty of God, the rebellion of humanity, the ruin of humanity, and then the redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ. And what I'd like you to, just as we're studying this passage today, just keep those four themes in your head, and you're going to see them all in this passage. They're all here. Uh, so just kind of put that in the back of your mind. Today we're looking at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Let me just read it for you. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. It's on page 675 in the Pew Bible. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not understand. No, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. You know, when things are going good, we so quickly forget about God. When uh, the job is good and the promotions keep rolling in, and the career is advancing, and the paychecks are plentiful, and our family is happy, and we have friends, and you know, when everything's going well, and our health is holding up, we just, God falls off of our radar. And that's not only true uh, for us individually, it's also true for, for societies. When, when we're prosperous and wealthy, it is often when societies and cultures turn away from the Lord. And that's what was happening in the time of Isaiah. Uh, If you'll take out your sermon notes for a minute, this little insert in your bulletin, you'll notice on the front this timeline, which we looked at for the first time last Sunday. This is a a timeline of rulers and kingdoms during Isaiah. Isaiah ministered in the 8th century B.C. And just to give you a timeline here, uh, the Judean kings, in other words, that southern kingdom of Israel, Jerusalem, See their kings. And then you see the Israelite kings. That was the northern kingdom of God's people. If you can kind of imagine a map of Palestine. But then the important one here uh, for our study today is the Assyrian kings. You see that? Now, Assyria was the superpower in the world at that time. And they were located in what would today be northern Iraq. 
So if you imagine this, the Assyrians over here in northern Iraq and their empire spreading out and going down south into Palestine, even all the way over to Egypt. They were the superpower of their day. But you'll notice there in the little timeline on the left, it says period of Assyrian weakness. For about two generations, the Assyrians were just... They're in disorder. Their kingdom was not unified. They, were, they, were, uh, they had weak leaders. And so for about two uh, generations, it, it created a power vacuum around the world. As this superpower receded, it allowed other nations to kind of breathe a sigh of relief. That's what was happening in Israel. So during that time, uh, God's people you know, expanded. They expanded politically. They expanded militarily. It was a time of blessing and, and growth for Israel. You see there King Uzziah on the upper left. See that little box, Uzziah? He reigned for 52 years. It was a golden age for God's people. It, it's kind of a renaissance time. But the problem was, as they were doing well economically and politically, they were becoming complacent and disobedient spiritually and morally. So they looked good on the outside. They had it all together. They, you know, King Uzziah was building towers and refortifying positions and digging wells. He was a very successful king. But spiritually and morally, in that time of prosperity, like, like we all do it seems, they drifted away from God. So God sends His prophet Isaiah to wake them up, to bring them back to the Lord. And that's what Isaiah is doing here in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. This introductory prophecy to the book of Isaiah. It's a wake-up call for Israel. It's a, a call to return to God. Yeah, you're doing great financially, Israel. You're doing great politically. But, oh, you guys have turned away from the Lord. So we see in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So the whole book of Isaiah starts with courtroom language which is usually a bad sign when God starts with courtroom language and He starts calling witnesses against you. He calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses. And here He files His charges against Israel at the uh, second part of verse 2. This is His basic charge against God's people. He says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against Me. That's the basic charge against God's people. I reared you up like children. I brought you up and you've totally dissed me. You've totally gone the opposite direction. And if you think about it, that's true, isn't it? Do you remember how Israel started? Moses, under God's power, led Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God did signs and wonders and rescued Israel. Remember, He carried them through the desert to the promised land like uh, on eagles' wings they were borne up. God took care of all their needs in the desert. Then He brought them to the land of Cana, the land of milk and honey, right? The promised land. There, the, the land of Cana was full of other peoples and God just wiped those peoples out in judgment and just gave them the promised land. I mean, He, he did everything for them. Never in the history of the world had anything like this ever happened. God had had certain people that He loved in the history of the world, but He'd never chosen a whole nation. This was unprecedented in God's doing, dealings with humanity. God took a whole nation out, gave them the promised land, made a covenant with them, gave them Himself. And what did Israel do? They turned away from the Lord. Instead of worshiping that awesome, holy God who did everything for them, they worshiped you know, idols of the very nations whom they had driven out. I mean, come on, Israel. And they worshipped these idols. But not only did they worship false gods, they didn't obey God's laws of how they were supposed to treat each other as God's people. God gave laws to worship Him, and He also gave laws to love neighbor. 
And, and, and rather than treating each other with kindness, generosity, faithfulness, truthfulness, the Israelites became adulterous and violent and manipulative and oppressive and lying. And, and they didn't treat each other as the people of God as they were supposed to. And so here's God's charge in verse 2. He says, I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. Israel, I brought you into this world. I changed your diapers. You know, I burped you. I fed you. I'm the one who was up late at night rubbing your back when you were vomiting and throwing up and sick. I'm the one who put the band-aid on your knee when you skinned your knee. I'm the one who gave you all your clothes. I'm the one, you know, you can hear this parent just going off, right? I did all this for you. And what thanks do I get? You worship other gods. You turn away from me and, and you disobey my laws. And so, in verse 3, notice the sarcasm here. This is a very sarcastic verse. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Hey, Israel, stupid animals can figure this out. That's what he's saying. A dumb ox at least knows who's in charge. And when the master comes with the ropes, the ox will bow his head and put the yoke on. Hey, Israel, even a stupid donkey knows where the food is. And who brings it? But you don't know. You, I've given you, you... You know, you can just see this parent losing it here. So he says in verse 4, Ah, sinful nation. Now we mentioned this last Sunday, if you were here. This is ah, but it, it, in Hebrew it's not ah, it's oi, right? <laughs> Literally, it's oi. It's the word oi in, in Hebrew. It's, it's like oi bay, you know? Just get this good Jewish, like, whoy. I mean, it, it's, it's, ah, it's, whoa. It, it's, it's what you say when you're watching the news at night and you just see all the stupid stuff going on and all the bad things happening in the world and you just want to throw the clicker on the ground and go, ah, I can't stand watching the news. Why do I watch this? You know, it's, ah, oy vey. It's, it's this cry of despair. It's the cry of despair that a parent makes after she's poured the substance of her life into a child only to watch that child self-destruct and walk in the total opposite direction. It's the cry of, of despair and grief. So don't just read it like, ah, sinful nation. It should be like, ah, oh, oy vey, sinful nation. A people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. The fourfold description. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. That's the indictment against Israel. These are the charges that God is bringing against His people. He's telling them they've rebelled against Him. Now, I think it's maybe helpful here to stop for a second, pause, and just um, notice that we have here a great picture of what sin is like. Now, sin's one of those words, you know, we don't use it a lot in our culture. We don't talk about sin. You know, people have issues today, but they don't sin, Right? Nobody really sins. You know, so, so, like, what is sin? You know, we, we should define that word. And I think there's two great uh, truths, at least, we can learn about sin from this passage, if we can just kind of make a theological reflection. The first thing that I notice from this passage is that sin is rebellion. If you want a good one-word definition of sin, the word is rebellion. In other words, it's God saying, look, do this, be this, think this, treat each other this way, and us saying... No. Or it's God saying, don't do this, don't be this, don't think this, don't treat each other this way, and us saying, I'm going to. 
It's, it's going the opposite of what God says. Now, why that's important, why I bring that up, is it means that sin is a word that is defined in relationship to who God is. That's what sin is. That because there is a God, there is sin. It's a turning away from Him. If you take God out of the equation, then you know, there's not really sin anymore. Because you're not rebelling against anyone. And so that, I think that's why we don't talk about sin in our culture, because we don't talk about God. At least not as a, as a holy ruler of the universe. And once you take God out of the picture, well, you know, sin, it's like that, that word doesn't really carry any weight. So we do talk about morality today, but we define it on different terms. The, the, the definition today that seems to be most prevalent is hurting somebody. It's okay as long as you don't hurt somebody, right? Because we don't have God, we have to find some other standard. So, you know, it's okay if, you know, Madonna and Britney Spears want to kiss and national television. It's okay. It didn't hurt anybody. You know, at least according to our narrow little understanding of hurt anybody. Uh, or, or we say, oh, come on, it's okay if you want to go in your own house and smoke pot. It's not hurting anybody. You're at home. You're alone. You're not hurting anybody. So how can it be wrong? But again, that's that narrow little definition. Or we say, well, I can spend my money however I want to spend it. I mean, it's my money and it's none of your business. And this is none of my business. That's none of your business. It's not hurting anybody. So how can it be wrong? Because once you pull God out of the equation, well, yeah, that's true. You know, it isn't wrong if you pull God out of the equation. But you know what? If you pull God out of the equation, the fact is nothing is wrong. That's the thing that we forget. Nothing is wrong once you pull God out of the equation. Why not hurt people? Who cares? It's nothing's wrong because there's no God. There's no absolute standard of morality and right and wrong. So, you know, why draw the line at hurting people? Why not just hurt people? Whatever. Because there is no right and wrong. But when God is put back in place, we now see that our actions are accountable to a holy God. So sin is rebellion. It is a word that is defined in relationship to who God is. And we are sinners because of how we respond to God and His authority over all of our lives. Whether we recognize it or not, He has total claim on our lives. And we have not responded to Him as if He did. Which leads to the second observation about sin. That sin is not only... Rebellion, but therefore it is repugnant. It is revulsive. It's, it's disgusting. It makes you say, Oi! You know, sin should make you go, Ah! Uh. Just as ugly as, as a child spurning their parents and, and self-destructing and wasting their lives, so sin is. Because that's what we do in response to God. Uh, I'd like to look at a, a text, in, another text in the Bible. So if you could like, I don't know, somehow bookmark Isaiah. We're going to come back to it. And then turn over to Luke chapter 15 on page 1035. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1035. Luke chapter 15. And maybe like bookmark both these. We're going to flip back and forth a little bit. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. A famous parable, one you've heard before. A passage that you've heard, uh, I'm sure you've heard read. It is the, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. It says in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. It says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Stop there. This is a picture of the rebellion and repugnance of sin. And go back to Isaiah, but again, like I said, keep 
uh, Luke 15 bookmarked. We'll come back to it. But, but it's, sin is that son saying to his father, you know what, I, as far as I'm concerned, you're dead. You're dead to me. I don't care about you. I don't care about your life. Just give me my share of the inheritance. As far as I'm concerned, you're just an inheritance to me. Give me the money. I'm out of here. And he goes and he takes all of his, his father's money, all of his father's economic substance, or at least his share of it, and he just wastes it. He goes to a foreign country and he spends it on you know, drinking parties and, and women and music and frivolity. And he just blows it, this wild party kind of uh, you know, Hollywood lifestyle. And he just bleh, goes wild with it. And it's repugnant. It's like, look at your father. Look what he's done for you. And so it's true for us. It's not just the story of Israel. Israel's story is a microcosm. It's a representation of the human story in many ways. It's our story. We are the prodigal child. We have turned away from the Lord and have not followed Him. I mean, yeah, we're nice people, yeah, right. And, and you know, we're here in church and that's good. But, you know, our hearts have turned away from Him. We've not loved Him as if He was the Holy One of Israel. We've not loved one another the way He's commanded us to do. All of us here have fallen short of His standards. We are rebels. And so the same things that are being said to Israel can certainly be said of you and me and of the human race. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord, they've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. So then in verses 5-8, through which is the next section. Isaiah shifts from indictment to sentencing. He shifts from, hey, this is what you've done wrong, to, as, as we say in our kids, to our kids, here's the consequences. This is what happens. And it's not good. When we rebel against God, there's ruin. When we sin against God, there is suffering. When we disobey God, there is disaster. And so in verses 5 through 8, Isaiah lays out the problems of disobeying God. And in verses 5 and 6, he gives one image. In verses 7 and 8, he gives a second image. So let me look at the first image in verses 5 through 8. It's the image of a guy getting beat up. Verse 5, he says, Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. So it's a picture of, a, of sin, is, is sort of a metaphor here, of a person who just is getting beat up and they just keep coming back for more. Like, come on, stop! You know, the picture I had in my mind was of a, of a boxer. And he's, he's in his corner, it's between rounds, and he's just getting pummeled. And, and he's, you know, his like, eyes all you know, swelled up like Rockies, you know, and he's like... You know, his nose is broken and he's just bleeding and he's just sitting there like... Ugh. The other boxer in his corner, I mean, he, he's not even breaking a sweat. He hasn't even, a punch hasn't even been landed on him. But this is the other boxer and his trainer's like, look, you've got to throw in the towel. He's like, no, I'm going back. Like, come on, stop it. No. You know, ding, ding, and he staggers out there. You know, it's like somebody called the match. And, and, you know, it just keeps coming back for more. And, and you hear Isaiah saying, why, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? I want more. You know, why do we just keep at it? Why do we just keep sinning? It doesn't do us any good. It only beats us up. We're ruined. You know, why do you go back to the bar again and again and again? When has it ever made you happy? When has it ever done anything but make you sick at best, if not worse? 
Why keep going back to the drugs? Why, you know, keep going back to that illicit relationship or, or that flirtatious affair or that uh, pornography or whatever it is, that, that person, that, uh, that unbeliever that we're dating and we're Christians. We know we shouldn't be doing it, but we just keep going back to it. You know, why are we doing this to ourselves? It never fulfills us. It always leaves us empty. Why do I keep worshiping all the idols of my culture? And we don't worship statues today, but, but we worship idols nonetheless. You know, we worship the latest gadget and the latest upgrade and the latest gizmo and the latest fashion trend and the latest, you know, this magazine and that magazine. I've got to have that. And I just keep chasing these things, thinking that this diversion or that entertainment or something is going to finally ah, make me happy. And it never does. I get it and I go, hmm, oh, look at that. Hmm, and I get it and I go, hmm. Hey, you know... You know, and it's like, and you just see this guy just keep getting beat up, beat up, beat up. It's like, why? Why are you doing this? Notice the pity, the pathos in God's voice. Why do you persist? Don't do this to yourself. Throw in the towel. Submit to God. Quit fighting against God. But we just keep going and going and going. It's like the parable of the prodigal son back in Luke 15. It says in Luke 15, verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So, he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, of course, remember, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience. So, I mean, this would have just turned their stomachs because pigs are, you know, unclean, non-kosher animals. And this guy's going to go feed pigs. So that, you know, you can just hear the Jewish audience going like, ooh. Right? Oh, that, we have to go to pigs? Ooh, this is bad. Then verse 16. It says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. I mean, imagine being so miserable that you see a pig like eating something. You're like, oh, that just looks good to me. <laughs> Here, piggy. Right? No. And he says, But no one gave him anything. He's starving. He's miserable. That's, the, that's where sin takes us. And if that image isn't enough, go back to Isaiah. Isaiah then hits us with another image. He shifts gears now. Now the, now the picture isn't a guy in a, a fight getting beat up. Now it's a picture of uh, a, a nation being destroyed by foreign powers. A nation being overwhelmed by oppressors. It says in verse 7, Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste is when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a, a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. You know how little kids go out in the woods and they make little forts? They little like lean-tos out of sticks and things. He's like, that's all Zion. That's all Jerusalem's going to become. It's like a little kid's fort out in the woods. It's nothing. It's nothing anymore. Now what's important about this verse to, to recognize is that this isn't just a metaphor of suffering because of sin. This is actually also a prophecy of what is going to happen to Israel. In other words, when God made His covenant with Israel way back with Moses, and He said, this is my covenant, here's my laws, don't worship other gods, love your neighbor as yourself, that's a summary of the whole law. He said, if you break my covenant, these are going to be some of the consequences. And one of the consequences God listed way back then was destruction by foreign powers. So this isn't just a metaphor, it's also a, uh, it's a, hey, this is what actually is going to happen to you, Israel, if you keep on the path that you're on. 
And in fact, it already had happened to Israel. I mean, read the book of Judges. Uh, study back then about how whenever Israel disobeyed God, God would allow foreign powers to oppress them. So God's saying, look, this has happened in the past. It's about to happen again. And of course, we can look at, uh, in hindsight, we can look at this timeline, this sermon outline, and we can see that the Assyrian kings are going to rise out of their period of weakness. And Tiglath-Pileser III, also known as Pol, they had the best names back then. I just am jealous. Um, Tiglath-Pileser III, also his nickname was Pol. Pol was an incredibly powerful leader of Assyria and, and brought them back full throttle to world dominance. So yeah, the, the things that Isaiah is talking about are about to start kicking into gear very soon, within a few years. And foreign powers are going to be knocking at their doors and we'll study more about that later. Now this is important because it shows us that the, the suffering that results from sin, the ruin that results from rebellion, the disaster that results from disobedience is God's proactive judgment on sin. In other words, it's not just like a natural consequence like you know, if you jump off a cliff, you will get hurt. It's not just sort of like, and if you sin, it'll just naturally be miserable, although that's true. But it's also the case that at some point, God also actively judges sin. He, he destroys. He is a judge. He hates sin. We talked about this last Sunday. This is a very difficult concept for us. We don't like thinking of a God of judgment. I don't like thinking of a God of judgment. It doesn't make me excited or happy. And, and, and we wrestle with that. We go, does God really judge does God really destroy sinners? I mean, is this our God? I mean, he, isn't he a God of love? And if he's a God of love, you know, how could he do this to us? How, how could he do this to people? Does he like judging sinners? Does he enjoy imposing suffering on sin? Does God like that? And I think the answer is, well, of course, no. He doesn't like it. But then again, there's a sense in which he does. No, he doesn't like judging in the sense that God is not a sadist. Okay? God is not getting his jollies, gleefully rubbing his hands together like a mad scientist, you know, looking at people suffering in judgment like, ha-ha, I showed him. Uh. You know, it's, it's not that he, he takes pleasure in it in that sense. I mean, look at this verse. Look at verse 5. He says, why should you be beaten anymore? This is the plaintive cries of a parent. Don't do it. Oh, come on, turn back. God doesn't like it. It says in Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So, yeah, at one level, God is not enjoying judging people. But there's another level where God does delight in judgment. And, and I think this is what it is. In the sense that he delights in seeing justice and righteousness upheld. That he delights in seeing the holiness of his person vindicated. That he delights in seeing the holiness of his glory Expressed. Does that make sense? In other words, he looks at the world and all of its evil and rebellion, and what makes him a good God is that he responds to it and gets rid of it. In other words, if God looked at all the evil in all the world and in our lives and just said, well, you know, it's, it's okay, let's all just get along. You know, what kind of God would that be? So part of what he delights in is that he upholds justice. I was trying to think of um, an analogy. An analogy I came up with was when Saddam Hussein got captured. Weren't you happy? I mean, I was happy. I'll just say it. You know, I don't, I don't care what your party politics are. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, pro-Bush, pro-Dean. You know, I don't, I don't care what you believe. I don't care whether you thought we should have gone into Iraq or shouldn't have gone into Iraq. You know, all that aside, I think we can all say, I hope we can all say that it's a good thing for the world that this guy got caught. 
You know, even if you don't think we should have been there in the first place. I mean, can we at least say we at least got a really bad guy? I mean, it's a fact that he's murdered thousands of innocent men and women, the, the Kurds. I mean, he's done horrible atrocities. It's good that he's not leading anymore, regardless of, of all the rest of it. And, and there's a sense in which I'm happy about that. Now, why am I happy about that? Am I happy like, oh, I can't wait to see him get tortured or beaten. I can't, I'm so glad. I hope they show it on TV. You know, no. Of course not. I don't, I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy seeing any kind of, of suffering and, and sorrow like that. But there's another sense of me which I'm like, oh, finally justice is done. Finally, they caught a bad guy. You know, so often the big bad guys of the world just hire really big lawyers and get off the hook or they have some extradition treaty loophole and no one can get them. You know, finally someone is going to be brought to justice. It's just like, at least there's one time in the world when, when somebody, there's justice being done. Something is being called to account. So in that sense, we rejoice. And it's in that sense that God rejoices, that God delights in the upholding of justice. He delights in, in upholding what is right and what is true and vindicating His character and His holiness. Now here's the catch. Mm-hmm. There's a catch to this. There's a flip side. I mean, that's the theoretical, but now let's take this and land the plane in the personal. All right? The catch is that in God's universe, you and I are all little Saddam Husseins. <laughs> that's the rub. Is, is that it's not just like, yeah, I'm glad there's justice going on out there. No, 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 no. If there's justice going on in God's universe, it's going to find me too. And you go, wait a minute, I, you know, Pastor, you're really just you know, stretching and this is just sophistry here. You know, we're not Saddam Hussein's. I mean, come on. Yeah, you're right. We're not. I mean, you haven't committed genocide, you know, I hope, and I haven't. Um, we're, not, we're not brutal, torturous dictators of, of countries. But the same, the same darkness that manifested itself in all those atrocities, that same darkness in Saddam's heart is in my heart. It's in your heart. It's the darkness of rebellion against God. And granted, ours you know, comes out in like, you know, affluent, suburban, upper middle class, you know, Hingham kind of ways. And it manifests itself like that. But it's still the same rebellion. It's just different manifestations. And, and in fact, it's, it's a trap because then we say, well, or at least we're not like that guy, that Saddam guy. And we think we're okay because we're comparing ourselves to one another rather than standing before holy God. And, and so we kind of trick ourselves into thinking we're okay, which is, of course, one of the devil's ploys to make me compare myself to you and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, so I must be doing okay in God's eyes. No, 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 no. We are, we are rebels just as much as he is, although it's manifested in different ways in our culture. But it's still rebellion against God. The fact is, someday we're going to have to stand before God. God's going to yank us out of our little spider holes. He's going to pull us out of our little suburban constructs and out of our little rationalizations and our little, well, I'm a good person and all this. He's going to yank us out of that and we're going to have to stand before God, right? And we're going to have to stand before His throne and there in front of us will be God, the holy angels in heaven. Off to the side will be the pit of hell over which we are about to be dangled and thrown. And God's going to say to us, why should I not cast you into hell this very moment? What are we going to say? Well, you, you know, God, I'm I, I'm a nice guy, and um, you know, I I, I gave a charity sometimes, and um, yeah, I I, uh, I I helped people. I mean, when I wasn't busy with my own life, I mean, I'm a very busy person. I have a big career, and you know, what are we going to say to him? 
well, I, I went to this church and, you know, that, that pastor, he preached a long time, service went a little long, and, you know, I, I endured that. And, and I didn't complain. And, you know, I, you know, I was baptized as an infant. I, I grew up in a church. I was an altar boy. I, you know, baptized in South Shore Baptist Church. You know, whatever. We, we throw our little religious deeds up to God as if, you know, that ultimately means anything to Him. He's going to be like, but did you love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and being? Well, let's not get, you know, fanatical, God. <laughs> Please. You know, did you love your neighbor as yourself? Like, would you know my neighbor's God? You know, <laughs> and, and he's going to say, depart from me into everlasting judgment prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's it. We are, we are doomed people. We are like, we are like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Well, wait. What's this? Verse 9. I forgot about verse 9. What's verse 9? Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What? God's going to leave some survivors? Whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. The, the, the picture is changing. Here in the midst of indictment and judgment and doom and gloom, there is this little glimmer of hope at the end of the passage. A glimmer of redemption. God is going to leave Israel a remnant. There's going to be a believing people. Out of the, the judgment that should engulf the whole earth and all the human race, God is going to pluck for himself, some, some burning twigs out of the fire. He's going to save a people for himself. Like, wow, I've got to hold on to that verse. That means there's still some hope. There's still some hope. There's still some time to turn back to the Lord. In fact, now that I think about it, I saw this hope just peeking out through the creases of the verse everywhere. Like verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? I mean, there's, there's a sense in which God is saying, knock it off, there's still time. Or notice that the imagery is of a person being beaten. Yeah, they're beaten, but they're not dead yet. There's still time. Or notice that uh, Zion is like a shelter in a vineyard, a hut in the fields, a city under siege. Yeah, we're in bad shape, but at least there's still a, a hut, a shelter. There's still time. There's still time to turn back to the Lord. Yes, someday we're going to have to stand before Jesus Christ. We're going to have to stand before His judgment throne. But the good news is, that today, at least for now, Jesus is standing before us. But not with the, ga the gavel of judgment. He's standing with nail-pierced hands saying, come on, turn back to Me. It's not too late. Believe in Me and be saved. Yes, someday I'm going to have to stand before the King of Kings, the Sovereign of the universe. But today, that same King stands before us and He's offering terms of peace. He's suing for peace. He's, he's offering amnesty, pardon, forgiveness. And these are His terms. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Those are His terms of peace. Put aside all of your self-rationalizations and self-reliance and I'm a good person, I got this, and just come to Christ and say, Christ, I am a sinner. I need You to save me. Like was done here in this baptismal. It's such a beautiful picture of people going under the water. It's like their old life is dead and they're rising to a new life that's totally in Christ with Christ alone as our hope. So I just want to ask you, do you have Christ in your life? 
Maybe some of you have been on the fence. Some of you have been that, that child, the prodigal child in a faraway land. Maybe some of you have been places that you would be so ashamed if people knew where you've been and what you've done. I just want you to know that today Jesus has His arms outstretched to you. I don't care what your hang-ups are. I don't care what your skeletons in your closet are. Just come to Him. Come to Him now. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why should you persist in rebellion? Come because Christ is holding out His hands to you to receive you and forgive you if you just humble yourself and turn to Him. What's keeping you? What is it? What's holding you back? Is it worth it? Turn to Christ and be saved. Be like that prodigal son in Luke 15. Luke 15, the prodigal son, verse 17, it says, When he came to his senses. Are you coming to your senses yet? Are you still living in a fantasy world that you can live without God? Come to your senses. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, what, rationalizations? Well, father, you know, of course I left because you were kind of a bad father. No, 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 none of that stuff. Just come naked and repentant. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And here's the response. But while he, was, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran and he kissed his son. And threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son started, here's the son kicking into his spiel. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But it's like the father's like, no, 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 no. Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray, shall we? God, we stand in awe of You. Because You are holy. We confess that we are a wayward and rebellious people. We confess, Lord, the superficiality and triviality of our religion. We confess the hypocrisy of all our religious gestures. We confess, Lord, the lack of love, the lack of other-centeredness in our relationships. We confess, God, most of all, that we have not sought You as our life, as our joy, as our Savior. And we know, Lord, that we deserve nothing but judgment for that kind of wicked rebellion. But I praise You this morning, God, that Jesus Christ was crucified for me. That You, O oh Lord, reached out. That rather than destroying me, You sent Christ to save me. And that, Jesus, You came and You throw Your arms around me. You kiss me. You put a righteous robe on me. You put a ring on my finger. You kill the fatted calf. There's a celebration. And, Lord Jesus, we look forward to the day when we will stand with You in heaven through the blood of Christ alone and we will enter into that eternal celebration, that eternal party that is heaven as we celebrate Your righteous and good mercy toward us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Christ, that You would enable them to reach out and take hold of Jesus, that You would change their hearts by the Holy Spirit so that they might have faith, that they might finally turn away from the stupid lawlessness of our age and the stupid ways in which we've lived. Maybe, Lord, someone here who's 
who's, uh, who's old and they, they've lived a long life apart from you, Lord. And I know the devil would be saying to them, oh, don't, you, can't, you can't change now. You can't repent now. What are people going to think? Lord, I pray just wipe away our pride. Wipe away our self-reliance and help us to come like little kids. Lord, make our age reverse. Make us like little children who would just grab hold of Jesus by simple faith and love Him. Lord, would you do that in our hearts today? Make us a people who truly walk with you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Just a, a quick closing song before we go. It's uh, number 479 in your hymnal. Would you just take out your hymnal and we'll just sing this shortly. It's, it's a real quick song. Number 479. We're just going to stand and just sing the first verse from our hymnals. Number 479. Thanks. Let's just sing this together. Just the first verse. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling Calling for you and for me See on the portals He's waiting and watching Watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Have a great week.